0: Unpopular opinion, but... Unpopular,
1: unpopular opinion. opinion. Unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. Bilisan. Unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion.
0: You're listening to Unpopular Opinion, a podcast for professionals from all walks of life who want to hear success stories from innovators who've won by taking the path less traveled. In each episode, recovering journalist and content marketer Ashley Ambersaba interviews individuals who have prospered thanks to their genuinely unpopular opinions, despite warnings from naysayers, threats to their careers, and colossal obstacles. All rebels are welcome. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Ashley Ambersava, and this episode is brought to you by my friends at the Audience Ops team. Audience Ops is a content marketing agency, and if you're looking to produce a show, then they're the best people to go to. They do all of my social media assets, and they make me look good on here. They record or they edit the recordings. They pretty much handle all of the legwork so I can focus on talking to amazing guests like my guest today. Hello, Brian Gibson founder at B26N. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: I'm glad to have you. Um, Today we have a hot, hot topic. um, And your opinion that we're going to be diving into today is that businesses do not want growth. They want control over everything, and they will sacrifice anything to get that. Um, I would love to kick this off by just having you share a little bit more about your personal journey and how you came to develop this unpopular opinion about businesses prioritizing control over growth.
1: Yeah, so I, I've been in four different industries, and uh, you know, so I've kind of seen B two B business and B two B to C, all different sides, all all different functions. Um, so yeah, I've seen a lot of different ways that people look at and think about how do we, how do we get to the goals that we're setting to achieve? And, and I think all the way back to when, when I was a kid, I, my mom worked two jobs, put herself through, through school to kind of work her way into a professional job at a company that you almost had to kill somebody, uh, to work there. It was so popular. And then just to watch the culture of that place go downhill and her kind of go in this back and forth journey of places where she feels really equipped and empowered and, and able to go do her best work and then it's really controlled and, and micromanaged and, I've always wanted to be in situations where like, as I've done the work, I kind of navigated to how I help people do their best work. And my first job out of, out of school, I was lucky to be at a company for five years where we always just talked about how do we make better our new best? And we were always just rethinking, reimagining how we did things so that we could get to the goal better. We could do better work for our clients and, and partners. And then I went to environments where it was like, whoa, wait, wait a second, you want to do something different? Like you got to ask, you have to ask permission. We have to, and, and some of that I get like they're intricate, big operational things. And sometimes it's just, hey, I know the goal. You know I know the goal. I want to go after and get the goal. And so I, I mean, every business wants to grow. A declining business is, is bad. Obviously, nobody wants to sit at the top of a declining business. But I, I've been asking a lot of people if I could guarantee you 10% growth with absolute insight into every single thing that was happening, or I could guarantee you 40% growth, but you probably wouldn't know exactly what it was, but you had a system that cranked it out consistently. Most people I think would go for, I want the predictability of knowing exactly what is happening. And and that's where I kind of came to this conclusion. And I coach a lot of people on how to think differently to get out of that box.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about obviously you are doing that now. You are out on your own. You're not um at a company where you having to ask for permission to do things. You are like the god of the company at this point. Is that why? <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, my personal mission is to help people and ideas grow to their very best. So everywhere that I've been, I've been in mission-driven companies. I've worked at nonprofits. And even when I've worked in corporate, I've always put the people and the mission at the center of of all the things that we do. And, and, you know, I've seen people, I've I've been at, at a large enterprise doing change work, where we're taking a business that operates like 20 years in the past and try to get it 10 years into the future and really encouraging and nurturing everyone along the way to realize, there's a greater opportunity for you to step in and kind of be at your best and bring your creative juices to this thing and and really drive it forward and to let executives take their hands a little bit off the reins like you don't have to prescribe what everybody in this 400 person organization does if you set a vision and focus everybody on the customer and understand what value and success looks like for the customer and then have a bunch of talented people or or even folks who don't maybe feel as talented but see things on the ground and what they do let them go after it. And and you'll see this compounding set of engagement and excitement and energy, but it's driven towards customer results. It's not just engagement for engagement's sake, it's actually being productive in the business.
0: So businesses, like you mentioned, strive for growth to increase their profits and market share. How do you reconcile your opinion with this objective?
1: Yeah. So I I actually think there's kind of a fundamental premise problem here, right? I, I think you're right that Businesses today, we talk a lot about market share and profit. And don't get me wrong, those are important. Um, But I'm a subscriber to Simon Sinek's Infinite Game Concept. And if you read that, he talks about how Adam Smith and the invisible hand of of capitalism, right? Where we're trying, you know, what was the motive before was producing the best good and the best um, customer result that you could. And in doing that, by producing the best product, you produce profit. And then along the way it got flipped and it wasn't about the consumer. It wasn't about the mission. It was about the profit motive. How do we put the shareholder first? And, you know, you saw a lot of founders of major companies from the early 20th century give way to these professional, almost, you know, profit management uh, operators who drove their company in that style for decades. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of the unwinding of that to say, Hey, what if we put the customer, um, you know, it's not gonna be 90, 10, but if we put them 51, 49, then when I start to ask the question of how are we going to make $10 million this year? I, mean, I used to work at a software company. And when they say, well, what are we going to do to get to our 10 million goal? I'd say, well, we got a lot of talented people on my team. Like we could open a pizza shop and I guarantee we'd make the best pizza and we could probably make $10 million. Oh, no, 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 We need to make software. Okay. Well, then why? Like what, what in the world do we think we're going to do to create value for actual real humans in the world? And what does this, what does success look like for them? And how do we go after that? So putting that customer just first Is the leading things that lead to the lagging thing of of profit and market share? I I don't think we can lead with that and truly get out of our own way of these kind of control mindsets.
0: I think that uh, the argument for companies um, a lot of the times is about risk management, um, making sure that their company is stable, and they that's why they feel like they have to have like all of this um, control over what everybody is doing all the time. How do you address that?
1: That's a great question, and I think there's this idea of certainty versus clarity, right? And, and so I think if we have the quote unquote perfect plan uh, or we put everything on paper, or we have every assumption documented and we're tracking every risk, then someone who's a professional expert can look at that and say, okay, we're doing the right thing and I can sleep well at night because I know what's happening. And I think that just assumes a, a level of, of authority and influence and control over the world that we just really don't have. You know, The world is a complicated place. It's always moving. It's always shaking, you know, we've heard the vacua, like, you know, volatile or uncertain, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's like not that we shouldn't have any plans, but we should be focused on adaptation, inspection. How do I have people who can do the work? And in doing the work, however they're doing their work, how can I get data out of that systems? And between Airtable and Zapier, we pretty much have all the tools we need to connect all the different things together, right? There's no excuse for manual status reports anymore. There's really no excuse for that hour-long meeting that 50 people get together. It's like, who really needs to know what, when, where, and why, and who has that knowledge, and how do I just make it no overhead to get the information I need. So I can, I can inspect and I can see who needs what support and where am I seeing traction and, and where am I not? Like that's the risk management. It really needs to be adaptive to individuals doing their job as they're doing their job, being able to raise their hand and saying, I'm seeing success here. I'm keeping going or I'm not. And how do I get coaching? How do I get support? Like that's real risk management. I think in our current workforce versus the old style of waterfall of like, let's play it all and let's just go execute. If you're, you know, if you're in construction, you need to have a super detailed plan, and like we know, the bridge is going to go like this. But in software and services, it's just too dynamic to really do that in an effective way. But they don't teach a lot of that management style in professional settings, and that's not what's taught and how people are brought up in in a corporate setting. So I just don't think we have a lot of good tools on on how people can learn that on the fly without risking their job at the same time.
0: I completely agree. How do you navigate situations then when there's conflict between short-term control and long-term growth?
1: Yeah. I I mean, again, I think at the end of the day, people want to know kind of what's going on. And and I think that the best way to do that is, you know, if we have a long-term vision and, you know, we have this big audacious thing that maybe it takes us 10 years to make what, you know, that Steve Jobs debt in the universe okay, I'm backing up to what's my hypothesis of value for that that customer. As a frontline manager, I should be absolutely fluent in that. It's not my job to do the work. It's the job of my team and, and their team and whoever to do the work. But I need to be able to question, coach, challenge, prod, add to, augment, connect dots for someone who's actually doing the work, right? So I feel like that, that control is really more, how can I enable, right? As a leader, how can I be a steward of like our company's idea and our customer promise and the talent and resource person that I'm like putting into that position to serve that? Like, how can I really be um, a useful guide and, and an advisor almost to them on the ground, but then also give them the agency to choose, right? Like I've led product managers where I say, I know that I know more about this domain than you do because you're newer to it and I've been in it for five years. It's not my job to make you feel like I know more. It's my job to help you discover the things you need to know for the next kind of month and then expand your thinking because if we do that every two weeks for you know a year, you're going to race past me because you're going to be doing it hands-on. If, if I make you dependent on me, well, you're never going to grow past me. And it's my job as a manager to grow everyone you know past what I was able to do.
0: Can you talk to any times when you've personally had any challenges advocating for a more people centric approach um, and having um, people kind of fight you back on that?
1: Yeah. You know, I think anybody who, uh, you know, like I I work a lot with startups, right? But I think at the enterprise level or even mid mid market, right? A thousand person company, uh, if you're an individual contributor, I don't have to tell you just how much of your day job you're spending not doing your day job, right? But I would bet (laughs) if you're a frontline manager, And I asked you to look around and say, how many things are you asking either directly your people to do, or that your company is asking them to do that you're holding them accountable to that is not them actually doing the work. And right. So like, I feel like every opportunity where there's a new process that comes down, I mean, I I won't name any names, uh, you know, such as you and me chatting, but you know, people bring in a process and they'd say, well, we can amend this process when, you know, whenever we know it's not working well how do we even know this process will be working? How are we evaluating success? Like, is it helping us do more things? How do we know it's helping us do better? How do we know that the decisions that come out of it are actually creating hits and not misses and what we should or shouldn't do? It's like, oh, we'll figure that out. I'm like, well, you're telling me we'll figure it out after we started. I'm, I'm asking if we figure it out even on, on the front end. And again, I think that's where I always go back to, it's not about me. It's it's not about what I, I think. It's, it's really, as a team, whoever's making those collective decisions to do things a certain way, holding ourselves accountable to saying, how does this help us create more customer value? How does it help us understand when we're doing that well and how we do more of that? How do we know when we're off track and we need to figure out something else? Like, hey, you know, you try things that don't work. Okay. How do we know when to move versus just pivot all over the place? Or how do we know we're actually doing the wrong thing the wrong way? And we really need to take a step back and, and think about it. And if you're not intentional at that level, it, it does create a lot of conflict. And I try not to make it about the people. Um, I think the people this is gonna sound weird to say, but they're secondary. Um, it's really about how do we all operate best? And then how do we create a system that people drive their energy towards to do that? Because at the end of the day, if you have a business where everyone feels super engaged and they are like glad to be there, but you're not creating any customer value, truth is that business isn't gonna last forever, right? And it's like, I would rather be in a business, um, You know, I guess if I had to choose between be somewhere nine months and it's awesome, um, or be somewhere nine months and it's awful, but that business grows, like, ooh, that's a tough choice. Like, do I wanna lose this job? all things being equal, of course, I want to be in a business longer if it's more engaging. Um, but I think that trade-off of we have to be customer value focused first. Um, and in doing that, creating an environment where people can unleash their potential and like, wow, engagement is just flourishing you know, all over the place as a result of it.
0: You mentioned valuing empowerment and autonomy and focus and alignment. And I'd like um, you to kind of break down how these values of, all play a part in contributing to a better environment for all.
1: Yeah, again, I think it comes back to focus first, right? And, and especially if you're a startup, you know, you're looking at an incumbent and saying, holy you know, cow, there's a billion dollar company or you're a hundred million dollar company. And, you know, them growing 2% dwarfs your 100% growth rate, right? But you, your natural inclination is to say, well, who, who wants my stuff? And then there's some adaptation in early days of a startup, but once you get that early traction, that's really the time. Like I talk a lot about the one, one by one inch square of a map, right? Like how do you find your spot where you can get a foothold and then double down on that? Cause the solving one gives you the right to do two, gives you the right to get to, you know, five and, and then upwards to 10. So I think it all starts with focus. Like who's our customer? Um, what about them attracts them to us? Like what makes us useful to them? How are we solving their problem? And how do we really understand as a team that whole continuum? Like I work a lot in B2B and in B2B, even in product like growth, it's not just about the product. Like there's a whole buyer experience. There's usually an admin role and integrations and onboarding. It's like, all of that is the product. And then even once you turn the product on, getting to full adoption is even more of the product. So how do we align each function, to understand like what needles am I trying to move in that whole flow? So that when someone works with our company, it's like, wow, this is super seamless end to end. Like I, I never know who I'm exactly working with. I just know this thing works. And it, and, it, and it's like something I, I can't live without. And man, I wish every product worked this well. And I think focus and alignment create those conditions where then everyone knows their lane And yes, there's collaboration across the lane, but people feel like they have more accountability and ownership to drive in their direction. And they know they're not bouncing into everybody in the organization. And it's really hard to set up a system like that. But once you do, it's kind of like, I can't go back. You know, I can't go back to a world in which we just are all tripping all over each other. You know, when you're a 10, 20 person founding team, that's great. Kick the can around the garage, like just solve things, get things done. When you're scaling up to 50, 100, 200 people, you can't operate that way. There's just too many connection points between all the people to make it work.
0: I love how you connected all of that, and it outlined how much like sense it all makes to do that and to value all those things. Like, <laughs> it's, You did a good job describing all of that. Um, I just wanted to take another quick moment to thank Audience Ups again for producing my show. Um, without them, I wouldn't have it because I would not have time to do all of the post-production. If you guys want to get hooked up um, and make, have me make an introduction to that team, let me know. Back to you, Brian. So how does a top-down control oriented approach impact employee morale?
1: It's a great question. I mean, I, I think we, it's easy to look at the world as it is today and say, Oh, top-down is bad, but you know, think about like the military or think about, um, you know, an operating room in, 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 a hospital. There's, there are environments where top-down control is, is essential, right? Especially lives are on the line, uh, but I think in, even in those scenarios, the mission is the most critical thing, right? Like mm. why does a soldier listen to a commanding officer? It's, it's because they've taken an oath to defend the constitution, right? They they know that the mission is is about trying to do good in the world and, and like defending freedom and honor. It's like, you know, there's a higher purpose there. And then when they're when they're given their order, it, they're also not just told like, you know, go right up the hill, you know, there is an understanding when you're preparing for all of that of like, why are we doing this? Why are we here? Like, wh- what is my, where can I contribute? What is my contribution? And as a unit, how are we effective, right? And, and moving forward. And so I think morale is a function of that. If, if I really understand the why I believe in the people next to me, I believe that the person above me cares about me, that they, they want to see me succeed and, and do well. And if I can bring, like, people know if they're able to bring their full selves to the work. And I, I don't even just mean demographically, although I think that is super important. You know, if you're in a hundred person organization and I'm going to be the 101st person to join, I probably have a pretty long job description of very specific things. I probably have specific talents they were looking for, and that's great. I, I can do all that in spades, but guess what? I can do a hundred other things. And wouldn't it be awesome if I can, in my own way, if I can enable somebody else who's the best at what they do to be even better because I'm looking out for them. I understand them. Um, people are doing that for me, and I'm just able to, to bring other value to my role that you didn't ask for, but I'm just, I'm here and, and that's what I can do. That's where i think true satisfaction um comes from is because i know this thing's important i have permission to go out and be my best self and do the things and i have permission to fail and failure is not punished it's it's you know i get coaching and guidance on okay you know why didn't that work and and if i'm working you know if well, i always say for the, jer- the name of the front of the jersey you know if i if i kind of do something that's maybe not how my boss would do it did we get to success great hopefully there's a pat on the back there right or if i kind of messed up how bad did I mess up? Like, is a client firing us? That's pretty bad, right? But it's like most things are not really that bad. If you if people know you're doing the right things for the right reason, they'll give you some latitude to to miss the mark, as long as you're not horrendously missing the mark.
0: When you think about indicators or metrics um, on how an organization following like that kind of ideal path, like what that would look like, what would you look out for?
1: Yeah, I I you know, so there's kind of leading lagging indicators. I mean, obviously lagging indicators. Gallup has a ton of research on employee engagement and and there's, there's plenty out there, but they have historically higher outputs They, you know, they have, um, higher profits, longer enduring customers, um, you know, their brand reputation, their employer reputation is better. So obviously those are all outputs of success of the work. And I think when you're in the environment, there are leading indicators as well. I mean, and you can measure employee engagement and and that's one, I think, useful metric, but I think there's qualitative things that you have to be open to being truly critical and self-critical, um, you know, I, a lot of people want to be, and I'm, I'm an optimist at heart. But I also look for what I call disconfirming information. Yeah, before I just believe something, I'm going to try to find that that's not true. So if I ask a, a direct report, "Hey, how are things going?" You know, tell me about how, you know what this thing is going like this client relationship. Of course, they're going to tell me it's good, right? I'm their boss, and they want it to be good. And it's like, okay, I want you to give me three specific things that you want to see, be, you know, be done better. You know, what's not up to the standard you want, or where do we think we're letting them down? And so I just dig in to where I think the pain should be. And, and some of that comes with experience as a manager. And usually they start to get to it. And I'm like, it sounds like we are doing good. And it sounds like we're not quite where you want to be. Yeah. Like, I want to keep pushing for it. Great. How can I help with that? Um, you know, I think it's stuff like that. I think it's really a little bit more qualitative and it's baked into the culture of how you look at going after opportunities and how you build relationships with people and solve problems that really gives you that barometer. And then really that leadership culture goes all the way back up to the top, right? Like the CEO or C-suite shouldn't be in the weeds of all the things. Like their number one job should be, how am I equipping people who lead people to lead people and like really understand how they're viewing that chain? Because if they can figure that out, then every layer you know, of people leadership under that will only get better.
0: Well, speaking of the leaders then, what kind of qualities do you think that leaders should possess to be able to implement that philosophy?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, how many people are there in the world? There are probably that times that of opinions on what makes a, a good leader. So I'll give you my flavor. Uh, I, I think there are four key things. One, I think is honesty. That's telling the truth, the whole truth, and being transparent. Um, you know, I've had direct reports that have said, you know, you've told me things that no manager has ever told me about the position of the company or um, how clients see us or you know our standing on in on the team. And it's like, I don't do it. To bring people down. I, I do it to help people see real reality so they can deal with the world as it is and make decisions for themselves too. Um, now you got to be some information confidential and I get that, um, but to the greatest extent possible, I'm like, I'm really trying to be open and share because I expect my people to do that back with me. Like you're working out in this job, doing things. I don't know every layer you get away from the work, you're probably losing 50 to 70 or more percent of the knowledge that's useful to making a decision. So it's like, I wanna know as much of that as I can without again, taking all your time. So I think honesty creates that two-way street. Um, integrity, I I think that's not only like keeping your word, but you know, we're human, we can't always keep our word. Like if I promise something to you at noon and, and I got it to you at one, I didn't keep my word, right? But I think we look at honoring our word. How do we, uh, if we're gonna not keep our word, how do we keep people whole in the promise that we made them? How do we make it up to them? And being transparent of, hey, I'm missing the mark here but I want to keep a good relationship with you and I want to to be a good partner. How could I do that? Uh, I think appreciating nuance is another one. I think as a um, non-traditional one, there are details and there are infinite amount of details. Nuance is details that matter, right? So I can look at any plan or any work that you're doing and be like, why don't you just do this? Anytime someone says just, it's like clear sign. You don't understand all of the trade-offs and challenges that someone doing the job is doing. So I want people to know I appreciate the nuance and I want to try to filter through it. Um, I can't know it all, but I want to make sure that you, I recognize you're in the best position to do the work. And and I appreciate that about you. And then I think the most important thing is stewardship, right? Careers and jobs are getting shorter every day. And so whenever someone works for me or, or someone works at a company, I want those people to know I'm a small part of a long career journey and an even longer life journey. And so I want them to be able to look back on the time and say, wow, they really understood my goals. They understood what I cared about, what I hoped for, what I was afraid of. Um, where I was in my, my phase of life. And they really pushed me along. Like I had one direct report who only reported to me for like six or seven months before I, uh, he left the role and I left the role and he got laid off from a future job. And he called me and said, Hey, uh, I just want some career advice. Like, I I know you cared about me and you helped me get from here to here. And I'm, I'm lost. Like, I want to kind of help get from there to there. And I thought, wow, like, you, you know, I didn't expect you to be my, be the first phone call, but I, I think that's what it's an easy choice that we can make. I mean, there's risk there to the person doing it, you know, putting the person ahead of the business feels like a risky thing when you're a manager, but I think that's ultimately if, you know, if you're a little bit self-interested, that's how you get the most out of people is when they know, you know, what I care about and you're here to help really be a tailwind for me. I will work hard on the things you put in front of me. Cause I know they're going to be valuable for me and you.
0: I, I mean, that was the perfect answer. <laughs> as you look, as my you job. look into your future, like what you would hope for businesses, um, what kind of things are you hoping um will happen, and how do you think you might be able to play a part in that?
1: Yeah, so I, I think there's an individual contributor answer and and a leader answer. If I'm, you know, I think back over my career as an individual contributor, and when I was young in my career, I, I I mean I wasn't setting the world on fire financially, but I still needed a job, and so there's there's definitely risk there, right? But I think. In the areas where you can, um, you know, ask those tough questions. Uh, if you feel like your work is not as effective as it could be, advocate for it. You know, and I, I joke a lot about um, being a pirate versus being a sailor. Pirates and sailors have very similar skill sets. Sailors go with the law, and pirates go against the law. And sometimes it makes sense to be a pirate. And you know, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, again, you're you're doing it in the best interest of the customer. If if the person that is not giving you that permission, uh. If you can articulate to them before you become a pirate, that you understand their goals and what they care about and how you're working aligned to that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I still don't want you to do all these things, but like, like, yeah, you you get it. Then when you take that risk and you get a result, you know, you don't want to throw in their face, but you can say, hey, like I can be an asset for you. You know, it's not, it's not about me. It's not about credit to me. It's not about like me trying to, to take ownership and empowerment, although like it is, its but you can show them like, I am a tool that can help you and this company succeed. And in doing that, I'm being my best self. And like, that's kind of my selfish interest there. So, you know, pick your spots, but the more you can be a pirate when the situation calls, the more you'll also give everyone else permission to do the same. And, and it's been funny when I've left companies and there are people that I kind of knew, you know, through Slack, like I've just been kind of everywhere in Slack channels and companies, and people reach out to me and say, I'm gonna miss your presence and influence in this way here and like things that kind of inspired me. And I'm like, I had no idea, you know? And I think where people don't realize, especially in this remote-first world, people are, are looking and watching and you just doing that can be an example to folks, right? And, and I think on the, on the leader side, uh, you know, I, I, I would encourage people to be a little bit more comfortable being uncomfortable and asking these hard questions, starting with themselves and their team, you know? Like if you really thought, how much work am I asking folks to do that isn't about getting their job done? Um, that's kind of CYA and, and, you know, getting permission. How is that serving you? Um, what if you tried to put one thing down? What, what would that do for you? And, you know, it's, it's hard if you don't have that relationship with your employee to, you know, talk to them and say, okay, where are we at here? Like where's going on? Cause you're going to get the, oh, everything's great. Uh, you know, no one's trying to rock the boat right now, but if you ask really pointed specific questions, Hey, look in the last two weeks of your email and your calendar, can you show me? three to five things that you've done that have distracted you from your work that either I asked you to do or the company asked you to do and like, help me understand what the trade-off was of doing that versus this. It invites the conversation of like, Hey, I understand what success looks like for your role. I understand that I can, there's an opportunity for me as your manager to help create space. And I want to talk about real specific things that I don't I want to, I don't want to come down on a hammer with you, right? But I don't want you to make things up either. If you can't really find any of that evidence, okay, then maybe we're in a good spot, but I can almost guarantee anybody can find three to five things that are recurring that are happening. And if you get real specific like that, people are going to be able to give, you know, actual things that you could work on and say, okay, how can I, what's, is there one that I'm assigning you? Great. I'm going to stop that one. Like, let's see what happens over two weeks without it. If it's like my boss's boss is asking you to join a meeting once a week okay, let me talk to them and see if I can just go to that meeting. Like if I really need you there, okay, how, how might we make this a little bit easier? It's stuff you could do in a day too. It's not stuff you have to go to a training for or get coaching on. It's just a decision to prioritize a little differently and, and finding ways to follow through.
0: Do you have any advice for job seekers who are looking to escape a top-down environment? Um, maybe flags they could look out for before they actually join a company that was not a good fit?
1: Yeah. um, You know, I guess my first piece of advice, because I've, you know, I've learned this the hard way is sometimes the devil, you know, is better than the devil you don't. So, you know, you can always look at an environment and say, man, you know, this, this sucks and this sucks, but everything looks great on a marketing website and, and everything looks great in an interview, but there's reality there. Right. And so I think if you're talking to other individual contributors like in an interview process, again, don't don't ask like, what do you think is in the future? Or, you know, what would you like of this? I mean, ask some of that, but don't take it as gospel for how it is. Really dig into, tell me about the last time XYZ thing happens or tell me about the amount of, like tell me about how you inform leadership, you know, in the last two weeks, how have you informed leadership of what we're doing, how how it's working and how do they give feedback, you know, about that? Because then they're going to dig in and say, well, you know, we had it this way and then this person left and, and now we're kind of doing this and, and okay, maybe there's an opportunity to shape it there. Or, hey, this is how it's been. It's how it's been for three years. And maybe the person who's hiring you is saying, it's your job to change that. I've been in that role too. And some people do, and some people don't. Like everybody thinks they want change, but you go first. Nobody actually wants to be the one to walk through the wall first. So I, I mean, I think asking about how things have been is a great way to figure out what it is. And And, and there's no environment that's going to be completely without red or yellow or mauve colored flags, right? I think it's about it saying if I accept this thing day one as it's presented to me, is that okay? Um, if I expect day one to day hundred, it's gonna be here and it's only you know a third of the way along, am I okay with that? Or if it gets worse than what it is now. And just I think being open, I mean, I've taken on roles where I, I saw a room littered with red flags, but it was my job to help pick up the flags. And I, and I thought for 60 days that was happening over the next 60 days, it clearly wasn't happening. And I was like, okay. I took a shot and my eyes were wide open. I was not upset about the scenario, but you know, I, I had to be honest with myself and say this, you know, another 120 days is gonna ha- help it here. So yeah, eyes wide open, looking at actual stuff and and being willing to accept that you're owning that decision uh, I think are the, the only real easy ways to move forward.
0: If you could leave everybody with just one big takeaway, what would it be?
1: Um, I mean, I think I, I try to be an authentic I, I, and I think authenticity in this whole thing is super important, uh, you know, as a business, you can, you can do anything you want in the sales process, you anything on your website, you can talk about your product, but I really feel like, especially in tech, your brand value proposition, you know, promo and, and, and marketing and, and all of the things are great, but really the product experience is where your brand lives. Like if you say I care about equipping, enabling, and empowering this population of people to be better at work, and then you have like the most boring, workflow that like is clunky, that's not communicating that you value them. Right. And so I think finding ways throughout this whole process to say, we, we care about customers and we're actually able to show in the experience without anyone talking to a customer. Maybe we don't even sell to them. Maybe we sold to this person over here. And now this person over here uses it. I want them to look at this product and go, damn, I'm going to say three of the top, like five value points that we would say just because of how they interact with that. Like, I, I think authenticity is the at scale is the only way you get there. And then it, it trails its way down, right? How do I authentically want to allow everyone to show up? How do I want them to have a voice and agency in, in what they do? And how do I create, you know, harnessed chaos versus really organized control that isn't gonna help me grow to the greatest extent possible, right? Cause like every startup is trying to chase that incumbent. And if you're not growing faster and, and more than, you know at a humongous more rate than they are you're never gonna catch up, right? So I think, especially in those earlier stage companies that, that are bigger than 20 people, that's when you really have to start to make the decision of, I can be different, I can operate differently, and that's how I'm gonna catch up um, to these incumbents.
0: I ask everyone who comes on my show at the end to debunk an unpopular opinion, and I cannot <laughs> wait to dig into yours.
1: Yeah, so you know, it, beyond this kind of businesses value control more, more than growth, I, I think the other one I hear all the time is timing is everything. And and don't get me wrong, I mean, there are such things as bad timing, but I think it's easy to look back and say, you know, oh, you know, after the great recession, we hit certain sets of trends and Airbnb came and, oh, look what Airbnb became, you know? And and so it's like, oh, we're in this part of the recession and things will will evolve and emerge out of here. And I think it's impossible to look at the landscape of things and say, oh, no, 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 we need to wait six months or, oh, no, no, like we do it now and we'll have a first mover advantage and, and then we'll win. I think really this focus and this alignment and this empowerment and really going after a big idea with a, a talented team and being having that outside-in focus is what creates a ton of value. You know, when they say ninety percent of startups fail, I think a big part of them fail because they they either have a great idea that they're not willing to adapt into a great product and service, and then if they have a great product and service, they're not willing to adapt into an organization that can handle scale and complexity. And so it, it's not that they just fail because they fail. I think they fail because of these these kinds of things. I don't think timing has anything to do with it. You know, I, I mean, I've, I know a lot of folks are out there job searching and and this is you know probably the hardest time to find a job. It's like most people can't afford to wait six months until the timing is better. Like you have to figure it out in this moment now. And it, it's like, I think you'll look back and say, oh, well, it was great timing that I met this person here and this happened and then this happened, and this happened. It's like, there are a million of those paths in front of us. It's just a matter of, sometimes being lucky and stumbling on that right one, well, like working hard and, and being paying attention and taking in the world's feedback and, and saying, oh, here it is. I, I, it's a lot more of it than actually saying, oh, I'm going to pick the perfect moment because of all of these things. Like the world's just too complex for you to have any idea what the perfect moment for anything would be.
0: I would love to let everyone know where they could go if they want to find more of you.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm on... Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, at, you know, slash Brian a Gibson, and you can find me on my website at, at b26n.com. Uh, and I have the beginnings of an Instagram, Instagram account at, uh, at Brian underscore B26N. I do a couple things on that's more like for fun and, and parenting. And my, my kids enjoy like getting into the social game. They're nine and seven. So yeah, it's gonna be a crazy world out there. I got to figure out how to help them get into it responsibly. So yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: I'm going to be following you after we get off of this now. Um, But uh, thank you again for coming onto the show today and for giving me a lot of valuable advice and of course, giving my network it too, but I'm not going to pretend I'm not selfish a little bit about what I extract (laughs) from all of these, but um, I enjoyed having you on. Um, I enjoy having you part of my LinkedIn network and definitely follow him. Um, If you're listening to the show today, uh, he has good content and he is a good human being to know. Oh, thank you again.
1: Thanks, everyone. It's been great. I've enjoyed the show, and I'm, I'm super glad to be on. and And love the uh, love the theme. It's, unpopular opinions are the only opinions that matter, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> love it. Another unpopular opinion. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but thank you, thank you again. It was a good episode. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Unpopular Opinion. This episode was produced by Audience Ops. If you're looking for help launching a podcast, Audience Ops handles all the legwork, so you can focus on providing the subject matter expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow Ashley's show on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube.